from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Hello, fine humans. It's great to have you here. My name is Sven Erlinson. I am the host of the Badass Counseling Show from the New York City area. It's great to have you here, whether you are tuning in from Mumbai to the Bayou of Louisiana, from York, UK to York, Pennsylvania, where they always used to make the uh, plates for the dumbbells and the barbells in the gym, from Durban, South Africa, to Durham, North Carolina. Rob knows a little something about Durham, and my son works in that fine town from Christ. One syllable, Durham. Durham. Sorry, I'm a northerner. I say things I shouldn't say. From Christchurch, New Zealand. To Petatikva, Israel. We have listeners around the world, and it is so great to have you here. This is a lightning round. And whether you have ever tuned in with us before and don't know what we do, or whether you are a regular of our lightning round, it's great to have you here. This is where I take listener questions live, and we're playing a little stump the teacher, but I'm trying to help people with their lives by answering their questions. It's funny because I've got, uh, I've got, uh, my girlfriend never listens to the, uh, the, lives. She just like, I have to listen to you every day. I don't want to listen to lives, but she does listen to our Thursday shows. She loves the counseling shows and people's stories and so forth. But then I've got my brother who drives daily from Lionel Lakes up to uh, St. Cloud and other places. And on his drive, he likes listening to the uh, lightning round, but doesn't care so much for the counseling round because he's never in his car long enough to hear the whole thing, the counseling shows on Thursdays. So everybody's different and that's okay. But this is about answering people's questions. And so let's just dive right in. Before we get started today, Rob, anything you, you have a topic you want today to be about and we want to sort of cluster our questions around, or do you have some, anything you want to start the show with today? You handle everything, and this is our 51st lightning round. Wow, 51. Yeah. And uh, do you know what 51 is divisible by? Uh, I must have left that answer in my other coat. 17. Oh, 17. Yes, it is not a prime number. All right, that's the extent of my math knowledge. You claim to not be good in math, and yet you get that out. <laughs> well, I was a math major, but I cheated far too much. All right, then. All right, here we go. Getting going on some questions. Using your method for healing, what if the person has autism? Do you have any experience with this? And thank you. I'm going to be very, very honest with you on this one. Um, that particular uh, disability is not one that I ha have a long suit in, in uh, autism. I've had some interaction with autistic people, and I've actually counseled a few over the last 30 years, uh, but I'm afraid I am not the person to ask on things autism-related. It's just out of my field, and I don't want to touch it because I probably you know, screw something up or at, le at the very least make an ass of myself. So that's out of my league. All right, so we're starting with a strikeout, but that's okay. It's good for people to know that not everyone has all the answers and I prefer to not even touch the ones I don't have. All right, here we go. How do I get my 23-year-old son to manage his life effectively without completely taking control? All right, Rebecca, that is such a great question and I understand that you love your child. The question is, that I would want to ask of your son with you present, but I'll ask it of you. Why do you think the reason is that your son is not managing his life effectively? More specifically, what's going on in his life that basically you don't approve of? Now, you, you are aware that you don't approve of his life, right? You've just stated it in your question. You're saying that he doesn't manage his life effectively. So what is it you dislike the most about your son's life? And let me ask you this, is that being conveyed to your son? Does your son get the message, either explicitly or implicitly, that you don't approve of how he's living his life? Okay. And what I'm doing here is I'm drilling down. If I were working with a client, and whether it's the 23-year-old or the parent, it's badass counseling for a reason. And I'm here to help you get solutions, even if it means sometimes, you know, we each got to take our lumps. We have to admit where we've screwed up. And I'm wondering, um, if he's not living his life effectively now, when did that start? Did it start this year? Did it start three years ago? Did it start back in high school? When did your son start living his life not effectively? Or has it always been this way? Has he always lived it ineffectively in your eyes? And if so, one, when did it start and why then? Let's say you say, oh, it started when he was 17. Why then? Why not when he was 15? Why not when he was you know, 20? Why then? What happened then? 
See, part of, this is why when, when it comes to journaling and counseling, when I'm counseling people, I oftentimes get more mileage out of the question when than I get out of the question why. And why is generally the most powerful uh, question when it comes to counseling. But when often reveals the why. Because, so for instance, you guys hear me asking Rebecca, well, when did your son start to manage his life ineffectively? She clearly doesn't approve of how he's uh, managing it. And so by isolating when the shift happened, we can then, and by saying, well, why didn't it happen two years earlier? Why not three years later? And people might say, I don't know, I don't know. To which I say, well, just take a shot at it. I mean, you chose that time for a reason. Boom, we've just isolated likely what the reason was, when the shift happened. In other words, what we're likely, what we've likely done by asking that question when is we've isolated when the trauma happened that caused this change in direction. That's where the unhealed thing is. That's where the thing that needs to be healed is. But so you're asking, well, getting back to your question, how do I help my son manage his life effectively without taking control? First of all, with a 23-year-old, completely taking control isn't going to work anyway. I mean, unless he's gone off the rails with drugs and and or just really something really extraordinary, taking control is not a good tack because they'll resist and they will entrench. They'll dig their feet in even more in their ways because the underlying message is you don't like how they're living their life, which the underlying message is you don't like me. Anytime I say should to someone, oh, you should this or you should that, I'm fundamentally saying I don't like who you are. When we say that to kids, when you say that to a lover, you should What you're fundamentally saying is, I don't like who you are. And you're wondering why they chafe when you say that. So how do you help your son manage his life effectively? What I would honestly do, if you want my honest God truth, I would go to your son and I would say, I want you to tell me every single thing that I have done in your life to hurt you. I want you to talk to me about how I control you or how maybe you feel controlled by me or by your other parent or how you feel pushed or how you feel minimized. And I would listen. And I would flush, begin to flush out your own feelings because anybody taking, you know, doing something uh, that maybe goes against their own good or anybody doing that is probably has some messages inside of them that believe that they're not good enough, that they're not smart, that they're not, they don't have worth, that they don't have value, their feelings don't matter. It's, I guarantee there's some sort of trauma inside your son. And as the parent, you have the most power to heal that trauma insofar as to go back to him hat in hand and just say, listen, I am so sorry. And to begin to own it rather than deflect, defend, deny, or dodge. And you have to assess, am I conveying to my child that I disapprove of my child? Am I explicitly or implicitly telling my child, I don't like who they are or how they're living their life? So then, because the power comes back to you, because at 23 years old, the child is largely just the byproduct of whatever they've been taught about themselves by the parent. So somewhere in this equation, your son has been getting messages and right now he's locked up or he's engaged in, and I mean locked up inside emotionally, internally, or he's engaged in uh, things that are potentially destroying his life. But my question would be, what's it in response to? What are the messages going on inside of him? Uh, Right, next question. (laughs) Okay, here we go. How do you handle your parent saying, this generation raised mentally weak kids? Okay, so Niall is saying she is a parent and her own parent is saying that this generation, in other words, Niall, uh, raised mentally weak kids. How would I deal with it? What I would say to that parent is, actually... I don't know a single generation, at least I'm in America, I can't speak to other countries, but in American history where the children weren't mentally weak. It's just that mental weakness or emotional weakness comes in so many different flavors. My parents' generation, World War II, they were mentally weak. They were emotionally weak, not mentally weak like they were stupid, very intelligent. It's not about mental intelligence, but in terms of emotionally weak, they were. You want to know why? Because they were taught to stuff down their feelings. They were taught just put on the facade of happy and that supposedly that's the optimum. Well, I think we saw how that turned out in about the fucking 50s, right? When everybody's fucking drinking and overworking and running away from their feelings. And then that gives birth to a whole angry, uh, you know, and, and fed up generation of young people who are caught up in, no, we've been stuffing our shit down. This is authenticity. This is, we need to express our feelings and so on and so forth. And people say, well, you know, What's that fucking saying nowadays? Tough times create strong people. Good times create weak people. Some fucking stupid shit like that. That's just such surface shit. Because I can put on a tough bravado facade, does that mean I am emotionally strong? No, every single one of my fucking clients is tough on the outside or is capable of being strong and all that. But they're just goo on the inside. They're broken on the inside. 
But I'm gonna answer your question as it lies. How do you handle your parents saying this generation raised mentally weak kids? You know what I would honestly say to your mom? I would say you have just called my children mentally weak and you are insulting my parent, parenting, excuse me. And you need to go, mom. You don't get to put down my kids and you don't get to put down my parenting. Because if you want me to assess your parenting, we can do that. But if, if your mom is tearing down your own parenting and your own children as weak, you have an obligation to protect your children. Next question. Here's a grief one, you guys. Listen to this. Advice on losing the twin of my son during pregnancy. Um, I would, I would want to ask, first of all, just out of curiosity, how long ago was it and how old is the son that lived or the child that lived? Um, so is this a, an issue we're dealing with with regard to the child, like the child's feelings as well, or is this about you and your feelings? I'm going to assume it's about you and your feelings based on how you say it. Advice on losing the twin of my son during pregnancy? The advice is grieving. My mother birthed six kids. I believe she said she had a few miscarriages and a stillbirth. I would have to ask my sister. She would know better on that. Grief. Death is grief. And if you are not grieving a death, you need to be grieving a death. And, and Rob, let me ask you this. Where do you stand on, the, on this whole idea of death, on the whole idea of grieving, but on this whole idea of uh, a funeral as a celebration of life? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely critical. And if, uh, let's say, younger people are denied access to their, one of their parents' funerals, it can do horrendous damage. You have to face it, be there, celebrate life, and grieve appropriately. And I'm glad you added that last clause because I've actually done videos on, I, I was never a fan of the celebration of life thing if it's done to the exclusion of the grieving. I am an old-fashioned believer, you know, uh, you know, my parents were clergy and grew up reading, you know, the Christian Bible and the Hebrew Bible to me and so on and so forth. And funerals are for grieving and you hire the Irish, you know, have keening and the, the, in the uh, Jewish scripture, they talk about that there are women who specialized in grieving to come in and grieve and, and as a way to help the people present to elicit their own natural emotional response. They may not be able to do it because they don't feel comfortable doing it themselves. I'm a big fan of death and grieving. And I think we short circuit that because we, in this country at least, in America at least, because we just think, oh, we don't want to touch our feelings, but also put on a sunny fucking face. And it's just stupid. In the pro and I'm all for celebrating a life, finding the value in a life. Yes, I'm all, you know, I like that notion of New Orleans, right? You go in with the dirge, you know, the music as you go to the church with the casket. And then after the funeral, you know, they're playing, um, you know, oh, and the saints go marching in and it's a celebration. Okay, fine, but there's got to be the grieving. There's got to be the grieving. So I love that you put that last clause on there, Rob, that, you know, death and loss with grief, sadness, frustration, anger, these are all natural responses to loss. And if we're not allowing those feelings out, you're just pocketing that shit and that shit will chew you the fuck up from the inside. Have you ever had someone you didn't grieve, Rob? No, not really. I mean, you lose somebody, you, you grieve. Yeah. And in the Jewish tradition, you grieve um, extremely for seven days. That's mm. what Shiva means. Mm. And then you grieve for a year. And then after a year, the thought is, get back on with your life. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I like that. I like that. In, in, uh, it's very interesting. And my mother would tell the story of uh, how my dad's mom, after my grandpa died, my dad's mom, uh, she was sad. She would, would have been in her late 50s. And the country pastor came to her a year later and said, okay, Wahlberg, which is her Swedish name, Wahlberg, you need to get on with it. It's been a year. You need to get on with it. And, I, and my mom always found that so terribly offensive because she's like, while the sentiment is, I get it, you got to get on with your life. But on the other hand, we all grieve at different stages. We all grieve differently. And uh, so I see the value in both. I personally am a believer of just take your time, let it be what it is. And, uh, you know, but, um, but I also see the value in the heavy, and very often it could be that my grandma never did those earlier stages of the heavier grieving and the year, I don't know, I don't know. Um, but I like that. I like that uh, Jewish tradition to which the Phoenix Oracle writes, maybe that's why I suffered complicated grief though. He was my best friend. Absolutely. The closer a person is to you, the, the more powerful the grief is going to be. Um, and Damien says, it's tough because sometimes it feels like it'll go on forever, but it doesn't. 
And, you know, and that's really interesting. And that's why those two different methods that Rob and I were just talking about now are those two different approaches. Either one can be good depending on the person, you know, and there is, I mean, to some degree, I still got to go back to work. So I have to be able to compartmentalize it at least to go back to work because I still got to put, you know, got to turn on the lights and, and pay for the heating bill, you know. All right. Harriet asked the question, please talk about choosing the wrong partners. All right. It's not that we choose the wrong partners. We allow things that don't feel good. That's what it boils down to. You're not choosing the wrong partners per se. And we would all say that we've chosen the wrong partners. And Harriet follows up by saying over and over, choosing the wrong partners over and over. If you're choosing, the, if you're getting into a relationship, getting further down the road and you realize, holy shit, I chose the wrong partner. What it is, is they didn't just become that wrong partner two years in. No, there was a pattern, a growing pattern of behaviors that don't feel good. You're saying they're the wrong partner now because it doesn't feel good. I don't like how they're treating me. I don't like what this relationship has become. But listen to that word, become. It's an evolution. That the bad of something starts small. You guys got to understand it always starts small. Big things start small. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Let's say in, in her case, in asking this question, you know, let's say that the reason the relationship is bad now is I'm just going to you know, Harriet says, you know, choosing the wrong partners over and over. Um, let's say her definition of wrong partner is somebody who yells at me and screams a lot. Okay. Let me ask you this, Harriet. If on your very first date with this person, they yelled at you and screamed a lot, would you go on a second date? Probably not, right? Ah, so that implies that that came, A, it came later, but it might have started with him cutting you off first or raising his voice a little bit. But there was a point prior to the yelling and screaming where it was something smaller or the first time he yelled and screamed, did you walk away? Well, no, we had been dating each other for three months by that, uh, but there we go. You would have done it on the first date, but not at the three month mark. But the problem is still the same, the yelling and screaming. And if I allow it once, guess what? Even if they forgive and, or they apologize and I forgive and they say they'll never do it again, guess what? I've allowed it. And things start small. So for me, it's something like, and you guys have heard me say it before, somebody who doesn't apologize, all right? Or somebody who doesn't own it when they've hurt my feelings. If I allow it the first time, it's probably gonna ha happen a second time and then a third time. Well, now we've got a pattern. Now we've got the beginning of a bad relationship. Now we've got a beginning of me seeing someone as a bad partner because, gee, they never apologized, but I never held them to it in the beginning. It is my responsibility how I let someone treat me. And yes, it can metastasize into such a cancer that it's overtaken the whole relationship, but it started small. The way you, it's not that you choose wrong partners, is that you allow someone to treat you in ways that don't feel good. You short, short circuit that shit. Oh, there's a tongue twister. Short circuit that shit. Short circuit that shit, short circuit. Okay, anyway, you short circuit that shit early in the relationship, time and time and time again. And if you're not doing it, you know what it tells me about you? That you've been taught that you're not allowed to have boundaries. You've been taught that what you want, what you feel, what you need doesn't matter. And so you're not standing up for yourself. And if you're not standing up for yourself, oh, that thing gets huge. It gets huge. So the real question is, do you have a relationship enough with yourself to know what doesn't feel good? Do you have strength enough and belief in your own value enough to stand up and say, no, you can't do this. No, I don't like people who treat me this way. Thanks for these dates. It's been cool, everything, but no. Do you have the ability to walk away from someone even though they seem like they're really great, but some of the things you don't like, do you have the ability to see red flags and to honor red flags for what they are? Fundamentally, do you have the ability, anything that doesn't feel good, to stand up and say, that doesn't feel good, please don't do that, and not back down? You will short-circuit every potential bad relationship later if you can do it in the beginning and never stop doing that. To simply isolate what doesn't feel good and to call it out and short-circuit it right then and there. That will stop all bad relationship because once it starts, even if it's not on the first date, even if it's on after a year and a half of being together, if it starts there, you stop it right there. And if you if they hit you, if you don't walk away, you've made a big mistake, all right? Because they'll hit you again. I We were taping an episode of the show, the counseling show uh, earlier today, and a man was hit by his wife in front of the kids. He got out of there. He had not hit her first. He did not hit her follow-up. And I hate that I even have to say that because if a woman being hit, I wouldn't have to say, oh, he, she didn't hit him first. But the, his wife hit her, hit him. And he had never hit her before. And he, she did it in front of the kids and then tried to make him the bad guy because he had called her out on her cheating on him, all right? And what needs to happen in that moment, he, he left the room, but 
probably what needs to happen is he should have left the relationship at that point. The point is we teach people how to treat us and it's such a cliche, but it's so true. And whether it's on the first date or the 15th date or the 15th year, when we allow people to treat someone in a way that doesn't feel good, we are perpetuating that behavior in them. And by the way, that's not blaming the victim. That's empowering the victim by saying, I have a responsibility for myself to stand up for my own needs in the future. I have to stop this in the future. That's called giving a, a victim power. I've been working for, with, on behalf of and with victims for 30 years. It's about teaching them how to change themselves to access their own power so that they are treated better, demanding it, requiring it, insisting it, living it. All right. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to take this one. My mom stabbed my dad with knitting needles before, in capital letters, before marriage. Next sentence, I should not exist. Um, I disagree with you. You absolutely should exist, and I'm glad that you exist, Heidi. Okay, but I, if you're saying it's simply chronologically that had mom died, I would not exist. Yes, but she lived and you do exist. Your mom stabbing your dad with knitting needles before the marriage, uh, you were born into that. And I have to believe that uh, mom's uh, hurting your father did not stop. And we don't know the story about what your dad may have done as well. But I simply want to apologize to you for the pain that you grew up in and that this is part of your story. And I guess my question would be to you, in what ways or uh, to what degree have you come to terms with your story? Have you found peace with your story? Do you truly believe that you should not exist or where are you at with that question? Do you see the value in your existence? And, and you know, I mean, my parents said it in, re in religious terms, uh, but they said, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And that Life takes, I say it in terms of just life takes interesting twists and turns and you are here today and you are a blessing to many people, I guarantee it. And the mere fact that you put that question out there, I've never had a comment like that before on our show. I'm glad you put it out there because so many people, I literally have had clients who have said those same sorts of things, you know, uh, that even before they were born, they weren't supposed to be born because my parents used all sorts of contraceptives and so forth. And so I was in an accident and gee, they never let me forget it or what have you. So you opened up a conversation. So you've had value to our show even today, but I truly hope you do not believe that you should not exist because I'm glad you're here. And before we get to that next question, we're gonna take this short break. There'll be much more to come right after this. I am one of the lucky few who've had the privilege not only to read his books, but also to experience Sven face-to-face -face for countless one-on-one -on -one sessions. His intelligence, knowledge, and deep empathy have had a deep impact on me and the people I love. And I can say that he is amongst the most important people in my life for the last 10 plus years. I am thankful for you, badass Sven. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are back with a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. We're answering listener questions. and We've had a whole bunch of really interesting, sort of all over the map ones today, and I like that. I like that. It shows that people have all sorts of different needs, and uh, this is great. Louisa asked the question, how can you devote time to a relationship when you're dealing with grief? Um, two things. One, there are times in life when we have to microdose, sort of, uh, so to speak, our pain. You do still have to go to work, you know, and you can't, in most jobs, you can't be crying all day every day at work or screaming at, uh, you know, the dead person and how you're mad at them for dying while you're trying to get your job done. So to some degree, we do have to compartmentalize our grief and then work on it, on it at other times, right? Um, so if it's true of work, it's also true of relationships that I have to some degree be able to compartmentalize it because I am still in a relationship. And hopefully the person we are in a relationship with is understanding of the grief that we are going through. Um, that being said, my question to you is, are you actually dealing with the grief? Are you going into it in your time alone? Are you going into it or is it sort of, I'm trying to avoid the, the raw feelings, the negative or the sad feelings, the hurt and, and all of that? Because the more you are deliberate in your own time about going into the grief and purging it and purging it and giving it words, the more you're deliberate and really actively in it, the easier it is, at least somewhat easier, a bit, 
to be present in a relationship. But the truth is, anytime you're going through a hard emotional time, it is challenging to be in a relationship. A buddy of mine, uh, his son was going through um, and is still going through a severe sort of mental illness. Son is in his 20s, and uh, my buddy is struggling with the fact that he feels like he's not being fully present to his wife, who's the stepmom of, of uh, his son. And he's worried about it hurting his relationship with her. But so much of his bandwidth is being chewed up, being present to his son, who's been in sort of schizophrenia and so forth. And uh, yeah, it's a challenge. And it requires deliberateness. And I told my buddy, you have to be deliberate about flushing out all your shit. You have to be deliberate in your journaling and working with your therapist. You have to be flushing out so much of your shit so that you're more able to be present to your son, but so that you actually have bandwidth for your wife. If you're worried about losing your wife, then don't, um, it's not just that you're giving time, attention, money, energy to your son. It's that all of that emotional negativity is still inside of you. So that when you are with your wife, you're bogged down or you're always talking about your son or you're not able to somewhat compartmentalize it. And yes, I get that it's overwhelming, but you have to be flushing it out so that you still have bandwidth for your wife. All right, next question. Okay, uh, Jake says, I love your content, man. Honestly, I didn't even know I need to work through anything until I found you. Oh, that's very nice. I appreciate that, Jake. Seriously, that is that is great. And the work I'm doing has helped every relationship I'm in. He follows up. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Um, how do you meet someone's physical needs when they've hurt you and you withdraw physical, you withdraw physically? Um, you know, what's fascinating about that? I just had a, this conversation with a client yesterday, couldn't figure out why, um, his wife is withdrawing, uh, sexually and, uh, it's along these needs. So, um, someone has hurt you. I'm going to assume emotionally because you didn't put a, you used the word physically twice, but you didn't use it a third time when you were talking about hurt you. Um, so how do you meet someone's physical needs when they've hurt you and you withdraw physically? Well, isn't it fascinating about that? You're withdrawing physically and yet you're worried about how do I meet their needs, their physical needs. You don't want to meet their physical needs. So why is this even a question? Well, we know it's a question because the person who hurt you is putting on pressure on you to meet their physical needs. And we're not talking about physical needs like I need a hug. We're talking about sex, right? I mean, let's just be really honest here. How do you meet someone's, and I'm going to interpret it that way because I don't really see this being as much of an issue if it's not sexual. It, it is because hugs are important and holding hands. Yes, I get it. And that's all part of it. So we'll loop that in on the whole sexual affection thing. But how do you meet someone's uh, affection, sexual needs when they've hurt you and you withdraw sexually uh, and affection-wise? So you're simultaneously telling me I've withdrawn and don't want to touch them sexually or affection-wise, and yet you're asking me how you meet their needs sexually when you want to withdraw? That says you're coming under pressure. Someone is telling you, I want you to meet my sexual needs, and what you're telling me is you want to withdraw, right? And the mere fact that they're pressuring you when they've hurt you says they don't really give a shit about your feelings. They're saying, get over your fucking feelings and meet my sexual needs. And you're saying, no, I want to withdraw. And they're trying to bully you into meeting their sexual needs over your emotional needs. Your emotional needs aren't being hurt and or not being heard. And you feel hurt by that. And you don't want to engage in someone with someone. Right. It's pretty fucking normal. And it sucks. Somebody's trying to bully you into having sex, basically, when you don't want to. And so I don't think the issue is how do you meet their sexual needs? You're asking the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, why am I feeling like I have to meet someone's sexual needs when I want to withdraw sexually because they've hurt me? You have to stand so strong and believe in your own, the, the validity and importance of your feelings that you don't cave in until they acknowledge that they've hurt you. Because what's gonna make you want to connect with them is that when they want to connect with you and we connect with another person when we own our shit. We say, you know what, honey, I am so fucking sorry. I realized what I've done. And it's just, it was so bad and it was so wrong. And it's not okay. And I'm sorry that I hurt you. And there's no doubt. And you know what, honey? Also regarding sex, I totally understand that you don't want to meet my needs. And I'm willing to wait until you're ready. Now that's a different answer, isn't it? Because if I'm saying, well, you should still meet my needs sexually, I'm saying it's all about me. And I'm willing to say, fuck you to your needs. And I'm willing to basically create a relationship that is not equitable as long as I get my wants met. And the mere fact that you're, the really scary part for me in all of this, T.J.S., 
Is the mere fact that you're asking this question because it says you feel obligated to meet their sexual needs, even though your emotional needs have caused, have been hurt and have caused you to want to pull away sexually. You feel like you should override your own needs and your own feelings to meet someone else's needs. And that shit was conditioned way back in childhood. Next question. All right. Guilt is useless, yet I cannot get rid of it. It's mom guilt. I'm a newly single mom. I don't think that guilt is useless. I really don't. In fact, I think guilt is a highly powerful tool for what? For identifying where you got voices in your life that tried to make you feel bad. You're feeling guilt, Erica, and I'm wondering where did that voice come from? Somewhere in you, you were taught that there's something about you that you should feel guilty for. Is it that uh, your child now has parents who don't live together? Um, and it's mom guilt, um, and there's dad guilt too, but is it that I feel like I'm not doing enough for my child? So I would want you to identify those voices. Identify where those messages came from. Is it from society? And a lot of people say, oh, it's my own inner voice. Bullshit, you weren't born with that. Where the hell did that voice come from? Where did that implanting of a, of a attacking voice come from? There is some voice inside of you that is attacking you, and it hurts. Yet you cannot get rid of it. Yes, you can. Keep going into it. Find out where those came from. Be journaling about how you're feeling. Writing letters probably to your baby. I'm guessing you feel guilt to your child itself, right? Write letters to your child that you don't send. Or if your child is alive, give them love, but don't stop giving them boundaries and being firm with them either. And it's easy to swing the pendulum too far in the form of, of form just love and affection, love and affection, no firmness and boundaries because children need those too. But you need to go in, where is that antagonistic voice coming from? And you need to flush out all those feelings like you're failing your child. All right, next question. How do you deal with craving love and affection but not being able to give or accept it? I crave love, but I'm not able to accept it, right? And in all likelihood, you got the message that you don't deserve it growing up. Uh, you crave love and affection, but you're not able to give it. I would say, Cooksey, you are so locked up inside. You've got so much fucking pain inside of you. Worse, you've got messages inside of you that are just running amok. Like, you're no good, you're not good enough, the real you doesn't matter, I guarantee it. Because you're simultaneously saying, I want love, I want affection, I can't give love, but I also can't accept love. The very thing I want, I'm not able to get, and I'm not able to give anything. You are at a, you are stuck in the mud. And you have to go inside, because in and into that past, and all the conditioning, and how do you do that? I hate to say it, but the short answer is, you get my book. There's a hole in my love cup, because it walks you through that process. For me to step you through all that process right now would take me a half hour at least, but you have to be going in because it's messaging that has got you locked up and believing you're not worthy of accepting it and you just don't have energy to give it. And very often, if I don't have energy to give love, it's because I've poured out my love to everyone else, maybe because I think I have to make them all happy or maybe because I don't have much love in my love cup to give in the first place because no one ever fucking poured it in there. All right, Sazzle says, and she's commenting to what Erica Marie said, because we have to put our child first, but often at the detriment of ourselves. You know, this is really interesting, this notion of putting the child first. You know that this is a somewhat new phenomenon? Do you know that even as recently or 30 or 40 years ago that children weren't first, at least in America? And it's not that they were abused or neglected or whatever, but there are other priorities, See, I never, I never got the impression in the home that I grew up in that the children were first. Now, my five older siblings may disagree with me. I never got the message, and I never heard it said, ever, even one time, family is the most important thing. Or that, you know, but every single day of my life, I knew that I was loved. I was told that I was loved by both of my parents. I was given a hug and a kiss every single day of my life, multiple times. Uh, I was told I, you know, they were proud of me, my father and my mother. I always knew I was loved, but here's the thing. We always had food on our back, yeah, food on our back, clothes on our back, food on the table, roof over our head. And there was always love. And there was kidding and there was music in our home. There was laughter. I got spanked. You know, there were times when I got spanked, whatever. But the point is, so I, you know, it wasn't always roses and cotton candy. You got five brothers and one, you know, sister who could hold her own. There were a lot of fights, a lot of confrontation too. So it wasn't just, you know, kumbaya and we're all Buddhist monks walking around in the mountains. No. But what I'm getting at is this. This notion of putting children first, I never got the message family was the most important thing or that children were first. I was always loved, but here's the thing. Once we had the love, our both of our parents were dedicated to serving humanity in their language also because they were religious and so forth, they were serving God, but serving people. 
So dad was always at the church or out, you know, working at visiting, uh, you know, the home for this disabled or the nursing home. Mom was always counseling people that once their children had the love and the roof over their head, there were, they went out in the world to serve the people because there were so many people who didn't have the love, who didn't have a roof over their head, who didn't have food on their table. We weren't the most important thing. Serving humanity was the most important thing in addition to once their children were fed and loved and off to school, there was work to do because there's too many people in this world who aren't fed and loved. And they saw it as their obligation to serve them. So it was simultaneous. It wasn't either or. Now, I am, as you know from my work, I'm a staunch advocate, defender of children, of victims, of healing childhoods and so forth. I am a big believer in protecting children and loving children, but that's not the only thing in this world because there are so many people in this world who don't have that, who need that. It's not just about me and my kids and my family. It's not. That's not enough. That's not how we heal this world because then we're just compartmentalized. We're just siloed. My family is here. Fuck you to the world. I protect my family above all else and or I just only serve my, no, just serve my family. No, no. That's how we end up hurting other people. It's you can do both. We have an obligation to do both, to simultaneously love the people who are in my immediate circle, but also to step out and find those in the world who need help and healing and a loving hand and a hug and food and shelter and clean water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. How do I create a support system slash village after cutting ties with abusive family? Well, you've already started because you've cut the abuse, so you've begun with one, a support system, a village of one, and that's you. And you do it by being your authentic self, by being loving, and you will naturally begin to attract people who are good people, that you are having good relationships with, who are good influences on your own children. You do it by simply being who you are in this world. You like sewing, sew, get in a sewing circle. You like reading, read. You, you like just, you, you love your work, Go to work, friends at work, everything. But the first step is cutting out of your life those things that are sucking the life out of you or sucking the life out of your children. And you begin to build by just following those things that breathe life into your soul. Just this last week, uh, my girlfriend and I, we went up into the mountains of West Virginia and we went to a bluegrass festival. I'd never been to a bluegrass festival in my life. I'd never been to a bluegrass concert. But we thought, ah, this would be fucking fun. And we went and the people were lovely and the music was incredible you know, for that style of music, you know, we're up in the fucking Allegheny Mountains. If you're going to listen to fucking bluegrass music, you go to the Alleghenies or the Appalachians or the Adirondacks, any of the A Mountains. But the point is, it's doing new things and getting out there and experiencing life, and you're going to make friends, and bit by bit, that village begins to grow. Next question. All right. Do I walk away from a wife that always puts her adult children over us and not fixing toxic behavior? Todd... The mere fact that you're asking that question says, you, obviously, you've already thought about it. It's like that old Irish saying, uh, we say when drunk what we've thought about when sober, right? Um, but you ask the question, do I walk away from a wife that always puts her adult children over us? You wouldn't even be asking that question unless this conversation had come up so many different times with your wife, so many fucking times, right? You've already brought it up. This isn't the first fucking time you've brought it up. No. And clearly, your needs are being uh, made secondary, I was in a relationship that was very similar to this, um, where the needs of the adult children were at times, and I had to persist, and I stood up, and I said, you know, I'm being minimized here, whatever, but in some things, she still prioritized the relationship, but not, it wasn't always the adult children over us. In, in all honesty, and not fixing toxic, toxic behavior, that's the more troubling part, Todd that if your wife doesn't want to fix toxic behavior, doesn't want to have those conversations, that's a problem. And that I would walk away from because that's basically someone saying, I can be a fucking asshole to you and I don't have to own it. And uh, yeah, I would have I, you would definitely have my support in walking away at that point. And the fact that she's putting her ch adult children over us says not just that she prioritizes them, but I'd be willing, I guarantee you there is some fear operating inside of her. She's afraid of putting you, putting your relationship at times over them, or even often, she's afraid of them. They have power over her, whether they're aware of it or not, whether she's aware of it or not. She wants something. She likely needs, wants slash needs her, their approval. And if she doesn't have that, it scares her. And she's willing to basically tell you to fuck it, you know, fuck off because she can't bear to have their disapproval. 
So that tells you who she prioritizes. And obviously you already knew that, but at some point that shit gets old and you, yeah, you're probably gonna end up walking away. Especially if you tried to fix toxic, toxic behavior, have this conversation, get your own needs met and she's still not doing it. Yeah, this one's fucking toast. And I'm not trying to be a dick, but probably toast. Sorry to say that, Todd, but you know what? But then you have to have the courage to heal all the pain from that and then be open to a new relationship where someone actually wants to meet your needs. And you gotta catch it sooner, Todd, because I guarantee if I were to ask you right now, when did this start? and sort of pushy on it a bit, you'd say, ah, actually I saw it pretty fucking early. And you allowed it, didn't you? And next time you're not gonna allow it, are you? Because you know now you know where it goes. And this is one of the benefits of pain, people. This is one of the benefits of things going to shit is that we realize, oh, it started there and I could have caught it sooner. So that next time I don't allow it to go further and I do catch it sooner. All right, next question. Husband, only here for my transactional needs. Neglects my safety, security, emotional, and mental help, she says, uh, neglects my safety, security, and my emotional and my mental needs. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, not sure what the question is, but my answer is uh, it's time to move on. I'm going to assume that you have made it abundantly clear what your safety, security, emotional, and mental needs are, and yet he doesn't meet them. This is someone who doesn't care about you, perhaps doesn't even like you. This is not love. This is not a marriage. This is just garbage treatment. And the longer you tolerate it, the more you are fundamentally saying to the universe, I don't matter. And that's not okay. And it's time to change that. And it may be time to walk away from a husband who neglects your safety, security, emotional, and mental needs. And because you can put it out there and put it out there and put it out there. And if they still don't change, they are saying, they are conveying it and you're not listening. I don't care is what they're saying. And it sucks and it's horrible. But now it's, you have to care for you. You have to have the courage to stand up and end something that is killing you inside. And you know it is. It's, and yes, the transition will be hard, but it's so fucking necessary. All right, next question. I like this one. This is so sweet. It's so sweet. You can, I can hear the pain in her voice, uh, yet it's sweet uh, for us old people um, because, well, just listen. How do you embrace being single in your late 20s? My twin is married and it's hard not to compare. And it's so sweet because I hear the pain in your voice, uh, but you say being single in your late 20s. And for, I have lots of listeners and clients who say, who would ask the question, Sven, how do you embrace being single in your late 60s? Which is a very different question from your late 20s. And so the ones who are saying it about their late 40s and feeling like they're too old and will never be wanted again, they're giving you a hug right now. And they're saying to you, Amanda, it's gonna be okay. You got a lot of life left, all right? And I know when you're in your late 20s, and especially when all your friends are marrying, and you said your twin is married, um, and it's hard. It's hard not to compare. That's exactly right. It is hard not to compare. But the bottom line is you need to be flushing out all of your feelings of sadness, of feeling inadequate, like you're not good enough, or like your twin is better than you. And the more you do that and flush out the feelings, the more spontaneous energy you're gonna have. You're gonna become lighter, but also you're gonna begin to enjoy life more. And we attract love, we attract quality friendships, we attract great opportunities. The more we find our own joy, and we only find our own joy by flushing out all of our own pain. And you'll find that your life may actually come alive as a single person, the more you get all the sadness and frustration and so forth out of you. And you may actually find that you enjoy it and it's gonna give birth to new relationships and new love based on a healed version of you rather than the sad um, and sort of self-blaming, self-attacking version of you. Everything will change if you have the courage to do that work. All right. I feel like I can't love like I used to anymore after going through an abusive relationship. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's very normal. Um, and the bottom line is it's a whole lot of pain. You can't love the same in part because you can't open up. You don't want to open up because you've been so hurt that the fear is always, it feels like the fear is always there that I'm going to get it, my ass handed to me. I'm going to get hammered. I'm going to get shut down. I'm going to get hurt. And so the tendency is to shut down and to not open up as much. And that's a lot of pain talking and that's a lot of stuff inside. And as you guys hear me say all the time, that has to be taken out. That has to be extracted more and more. But what it also, and let's say even if you do that, what you're going to do next time is put the loving and the opening up on more of a one-to-one -one correlation. That I open up, they open up. 
I open up, they open up, they open up, I open up a little bit more. Versus sometimes what we do, um, especially when we're young, is we just open up completely and we pour all the love out there all at once. And I'm not saying that's what you did. I don't know what you did. I know how I used to be when I was younger and putting it all out there. And I was doing that even really into my 40s. Um, and then you just sort of scale it back a bit. And it's like, I need some reciprocation. I need to feel safe. I need to feel like I'm being loved back. Like this person appreciates me as much as I appreciate them. And so you can love like you used to on one hand, uh, insofar as you can love again, you can trust again. It's getting out all of the feelings of distrust and so forth. Um, but how you move into it, the rate at which you move into it uh, does become different, but you have to do that inner healing work. I'm just gonna take one or two more questions here before we sew it up. Can we ever get past it though, Sven? I also, because I also do that. Can you ever get past the pain of a past abusive relationship and lack of trust? Yeah, yeah, you can. And I've, people, friends, family, clients, uh, people online here who reach out to me, you absolutely can get past it. But again, it requires doing the hard, ugly work and taking your time doing it because you're in, you're in a healing process. You're in a grieving process. You're in a flushing process, a purging of the pain process. And then there's the time of just healing. You know, it's not just, you know, if you think about a wound, it's not just, oh, there's, there's the wound and there's the bandage and now the scab is growing. And it's like, well, it's healed. The scab is there. Clearly it's healed. No, the scab at its own time has to peel off. And then there's the scar. And then the sort of replenishment. Okay, the little hair follicles are growing back through it. it, it the whole process just takes time. And there's no rush. So yes, you, are, you can get, it's not even past it, it's through it. And then move on to new life. And what you'll find, if you're really open to the process, is that the pain of it, if you've really done the work, the pain has made you deeper, richer, calmer, wiser, gentler but also firmer in holding your boundaries, the pain has a power to grow us. All right, one or two more. I'm now in my early 40s and I find that I enjoy the personal time I have for me. I spent the last 20 plus years in a mentally toxic relationship because I didn't want to be alone. Well, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that what a few folks have said here today? I don't wanna be alone, I don't wanna be alone. And she's saying, I didn't wanna be alone either, but cripes, now I'm out of it and I really am enjoying my early 40s. Isn't that fascinating? And a lot of women think, well, shit, early 40s, gosh, I'm too old and I'm this, and you know, I gotta have a relationship, but I won't because I'm too old. It's bullshit. You're saying flat out, bullshit. All right. Um, <laughs> here's a cute little comment from Auntie Na. Rob, you wanna know what Auntie Na says? Love to know. Sven, please, stress journaling. It saved me. I love hearing that save you. That's fantastic. Um, I don't... I think most of my listeners would say, I'm sick of hearing about journaling, Sven. <laughs> nice to get some reinforcement. But that's good. I know. I love that comment. I love that. All right. What do you mean by flushing out the feelings? What I mean is precisely what Auntie Na said, that it means going into the feelings. So I'm just going to take a death. We had a woman comment earlier. Uh, I lost one of my twins in pregnancy. All right. And we we're talking about grieving. Well, what does that mean? At the very least, it means take a pen and fucking paper and start what? right at the top of the page. What am I feeling today? What am I feeling right now? I'm so sad that I lost my twin. I, God, I, I so wanted that. I feel like I let my husband down or I just feel like I'm a bad mother. What's wrong with my body? I just feel so sad. I feel like it's so worthless. Yet I'm mad. I'm mad at God for taking away my baby. And, and I'm, I guess I'm also feeling um, happy in a weird way. And I don't know why I'm feeling happy, but that alone bothers me. But I also feel guilty. It's flushing, 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 flushing. That's what it is. That's what it means to be flushing out. To allow welcoming, allowing your feelings to come up and giving them an avenue for exit. Whether it's counseling, whether it's talking with a friend, whether it's journaling, whether it's writing letters that you don't send. All right, what, final question. Here we go, right here. In dating, how do we separate the blurred lines between chasing and effort? Does it come from a place of peace or does it come from a place of joy? Does it come from a place of calm or does it come from a place of fear? Does it come from a place of ad, ad, uh, agitation or does it come from a place of excitement? You have to be able to monitor your feelings. So this notion of chasing someone, uh, you know, am I just chasing? Do I have to have it? I'm holding on tightly or is it I'm putting an effort because I'm genuinely enjoying this person and it's okay if I lose this person. Difference between fear and not fear in dating is, will you be okay if you lose the person? 
And if you can say yes, then you're probably going to slow the fuck down. And it's still okay to chase. It's still okay to put in effort, chase, so to speak. But if you're doing it out of fear that I have to have this person, otherwise I won't be okay, now you're forcing it. And as you guys know, I don't believe in forcing anything. Yeah, so that's it. No, this is the last one. Patty, when you finally work through your shit, does it get easier? Oh, hell yes. Tons easier. In fact, it's you won't even have to be all the way through it. You can be working in it and you'll begin to feel lighter. I guarantee if we're uh, letting this uh, show go even longer and just letting people's comments come up, has counseling work for you? Has journaling work for you? People say, I've just been doing it for six months and it, it's already, I just feel so different. I've only been doing it a couple of months and I love it. And it's transforming my life. Does it get easier? It gets a help. Not only easier, you get more energy, literal physical energy. You have greater clarity. You have a greater sense of purpose. The more you flush out that crap, your own natural self rises up from within. And I encourage you all to be doing that. Rob, any final thoughts or comments at the end of today's fine show? It was a good show. And I'm thinking about the uh, listener who said they perhaps should have never ever been born mm. when a child says to the parent uh, was i an accident i think the right answer is no you were a surprise because an accident is something that if you had to do it again you wouldn't but a surprise is something you didn't know you wanted until you got it i like that there you go i like that yeah i love that in fact and uh so to every one of you that is struggling right now to every one of you that is hurting alone, maybe begging, trying to get someone back, or maybe feeling like you were never wanted in the first place. To everyone who's hurting in any way in their heart, in their soul, please know that I'm thinking about you, and I do encourage you to do the work of the healing process that we talk about so much on this show and that I talk about in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. If you need resources, go to badasscounseling.com. Tons of resources there. If you need counseling resources, there are lots of great sites out there, such as Psychology Today. Go to nami.org, N-A-M-I.org. These are resources, but please do the healing work. And we all care. Casey, Rob, me, we do this. This is volunteer work. We are doing this because we give a shit. And I hope that we're able to reach and help at least a few of you out there today. To all of you who have tuned in live, thank you so much for your questions. To those of you tuning in around the world from Mumbai to the Bayou, it's great to have you tuning into our show. They go up every Sunday, lightning rounds do, and every Thursday, counseling episodes. Thank you for tuning in to the Badass Counseling Show. If you have further questions or need resources, go to badasscounseling.com. I am Sven Erlinson. Have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.